Uh, and then finally, fundamentally, I guess, because it's there, because we don't know, right? We, got the, we have no idea what's on the, well, we have some idea. We have a 10 kilometer kind of idea of what's on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and this is our earth. The things we will find, we don't know. And what we will learn from the stuff that we don't know that we don't know about yet is probably the most exciting things we're going to learn. Uh, and just as an example of that, uh, if you think back to Marie Tharp and Bruce Heason in the 50s, penciling down the uh, a couple of acoustic transects across the uh, Atlantic Ridge, that directly led to the development of plate tectonics, uh, which has revolutionized uh, our understanding of the Earth. We just have an obligation to understand the Earth we live on. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. The voice you heard right at the start of this episode, that was Commander Samuel Greenaway. And today we're going to be talking about mapping the deep oceans. We're going to talk about the kind of equipment we're using, the resolution we can expect, the challenges we face when, when we do this kind of work, and I guess above all, why we might want to do it, what, what we're going to get out of it. Just before we get started with this podcast episode, a big thank you to our sponsor, Pictera. Pictera has actually been on the podcast before. That episode was called uh, Machine Learning and Object Detection for the Rest of Us. So if that's something you're interested in, go back and check it out. If you haven't heard from them before, Pictera is a geospatial platform that lets you autonomously extract objects from all kinds of different imagery sources. And one of the really interesting things about Pictera's platform is that you can, you can do it yourself. So you build and deploy these deep learning models and then run it on your own imagery. And what this looks like in practice is that you, you have some Im imagery, you draw polygons around the features that you're interested in extracting, and then the platform goes off and does the heavy lifting. It looks for other features that match the ones that you identified. So if that's something you might be interested in doing, if you think that this could add value to your business or the work that you're doing, check out Pictera at P-I-C-T-E-R-R-A.ch. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it a bit easier for you. Check them out. Great company doing some really interesting work. Okay, let's get on with the interview. Hi Sam, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about mapping the seabed and we're going to relate it back to a rather ambitious project called the Seabed 2030 project. But I think before we before we get involved in that, before we dive into, into the weeds, if you will, of that, of all that interesting stuff, perhaps you could just take a couple of minutes to introduce yourself to the audience, perhaps explain how you got involved in seabed mapping. Yeah, sure thing. And uh, thanks for the invitation to join your program. Yeah, just a brief introduction. So uh, I'm currently the commanding officer of the NOAA ship Rainier. Uh, that's a hydrographic mapping ship uh, currently based on the west coast of the United States. I've been involved with ocean mapping for about 16 years as a commissioned officer in the, the NOAA Corps. Uh, so we operate the ships and the aircraft of NOAA doing hydrographic mapping, fisheries research. So uh, I got involved um, from actually by accident, just uh, looking at the weather one day and they were advertising for the NOAA Corps and frankly, I'd never heard of it. Clicked on the link and uh, wound up applying a couple of months later and uh, and then I was off driving ships. So I've been doing that for 16 years. I love it. So we've had a lot of accidental geographers on the podcast. You are for sure the first accidental uh, ocean mapper. Terrific. I mentioned right at the introduction there, we, a project called the, the Seabed 2030 project. Would you mind talking us through what that is? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the Seabed 2030 project is an international project with a pretty simple goal to map the oceans of the earth in 10 years by 2030. Uh, they've limited it. Uh, the scope of that is from 200 meters and deeper, uh, so the deep ocean. And it's an ambitious goal. 
though probably a surprising one to many of your listeners who may have thought, as I kind of did when I started out with this, like, haven't we done that already? Isn't it mapped? Uh, and it turns out it's not. But, but we do have maps of it, right? Because we, we can go to things like Google Earth. I can go to NOAA's website and I can see that somebody has made some effort to at least estimate what, what the seabed looks like because I can see it on a map. But perhaps you could explain a little bit about where that data come from before we start talking about how we can um, you know, realize this really ambitious goal of mapping the seabed uh, by 2030. Yeah, so we have been mapping the ocean for a long time, certainly um, uh, here in the United States, uh, the predecessor agencies to NOAA, the Survey of the Coast, started in 1807, so that's back in Thomas Jefferson's time, uh, and we've been hard at it ever since. So there's been a tremendous amount of mapping effort, uh, not only here in the United States, but, but around the world. It's just, it's a really big problem. The Earth's big, the ocean's deep, and it's hard to make measurements of the ocean. Um, and hopefully we'll go into some of those techniques later. But sure, that that impression that, that that this is already done. Sure, you open up Google or Google Earth. I did that this morning to have a look at it, and it looks like we've got a complete map. Uh, where most of that data fr is from isn't from measurement of the uh, depths of the seafloor. Actually, it's from inversion from gravity. They measure the gravity rather ingeniously using satellite altimetry uh, and looking at the slope of the surface of the seawater. If you could imagine a flat chunk of ocean with a perfectly flat sea bottom, and then you went and stuck a sea mountain on the bottom, uh, that gravity would pull the water a little closer to it and be a little hill of water uh, sitting over that sea mountain. And you can see that with laser altimetry, with satellite altimetry. Um, so it's inversions from uh, satellite altimetry that forms the bulk of that data that you might see in, in the oceans in Google Earth. Certainly combined with those global maps are uh, research cruises, hydrographic mapping cruises, uh, and I'd invite your listeners to just uh, find their favorite place in Google Earth and, and zoom in. And you'll often see that high level or the higher resolution data popping through. It looks like a little snail trail across the ocean in some places, or maybe some little pinpricks um, that are point soundings. But yeah, the bulk of that data comes from satellite altimetry, from gravity inversion. Perhaps you could just take a few minutes to explain why it's important to, to map the bathymetry of the world's oceans. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll start off with the mapping work that I do uh, for the most part supports. Largely that's for commerce and safe navigation. Our primary goal in going out and surveying U.S. waters uh, from the Office of Coast Survey's perspective is to update the navigational charts to support safe navigation and to support commerce. Uh, a vast percentage of all international trade travels by sea, and that's been the case uh, for a long time. It's going to be the case uh, for a long time in the, in the future. So safe navigation and commerce uh, is a big part of that. So that's true in the coastal state. It's also true in the in the deep ocean. There are areas that are just not very well surveyed. Uh, secondly would be uh, resource management, uh, whether it's fisheries or habitat, oil or gas, um, submerged minerals or lands, uh, or even siting of offshore wind farms. A base map of, of what's down there is really critical uh, if you're going to manage it or exploit it or manage the exploitation of those resources. Third is probably hazards. The sea is a wonderful thing to have on the earth, but it's also uh, comes with its own hazards. A good example of that is tsunamis. So understanding the process that's driving the tsunamis, uh, understanding the slumps or the uplifts behind the generation of tsunamis, but also the propagation. Um, the, a tsunami is a wave that extends all the way to the seabed. So it's channeled, it's steered by the bathymetry. So if we had a better understanding of the, the terrain of the seabed, we could do a much better job at modeling the propagation of tsunamis and, and issuing warnings to the right places. So that's a big one, hazards. Getting to models, uh, ocean circulation models, a key part of that is the 
is one of the key boundary conditions is the is the seabed. Um, so understanding ocean circulation, understanding global tides, uh, understanding the dynamics of the ocean, understanding the bathymetry is a big part of that. The frictional drag, the roughness, all that's important. Uh, and then finally, fundamentally, I guess because it's there, because because we don't know, right? We got the we have no idea what's on the. Well, we have some idea. We have a ten kilometer kind of idea of what's on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and this is our Earth. The things we will find, we don't know. And what we will learn from the stuff that we don't know that we don't know about yet is probably the most exciting things we're going to learn. Uh, and just as an example of that, uh, if you think back to Marie Tharp and Bruce Heason in the 50s, penciling down the uh, a couple of acoustic transects across the uh, Atlantic Ridge, that directly led to the development of plate tectonics, uh, which has revolutionized uh, our understanding of the Earth. We just have an obligation to understand the Earth we live on. I completely agree, completely agree. Um, I'm sure there's a, a whole bunch of other things we can do with this data as well. You, you mentioned that resolution. I, I think you just said something like uh, 10 kilometer squares. Could you give me a rough idea of what kind of resolution we should be expecting to come out of a, a, a bathymetric survey of the deep ocean? It depends what equipment you use. So that 10 kilometers is about as good as you can get with uh, with a gravity-derived measurement. So it depends on the equipment, typical deployed deep water mapping equipment now is on order of uh, one to two degrees uh, resolution. So you're talking the deep ocean, you're talking tens, tens to in some cases, hundreds of meters, but on order of tens of meters, that gets a lot better in the shallow areas. We might uh, typically one of our products for hydrographic charting would be, we'd be looking at resolutions at half meter. uh, And we can even do better if we needed to uh, for, for high resolution products. You can do better, and the, that fundamental resolution gets worse or gets coarser the further you are from the seabed. So to get better, you can put instrumentation closer to the seabed, either through an autonomous underwater vehicle or deep towing an instrument down close to the seabed. That comes with its own challenges, uh, and it's slow going. But certainly if you're going to look for small things in deep water, you have to get that sensor down closer to the seabed. So we're just talking about getting instrumentation closer to the seabed, getting sensors in the sea to get these high resolution maps of the seafloor. I wonder if you could just take the time to clarify for us why we can't use satellite platforms for this job to directly measure the bathymetry of the oceans. Um, Because the ocean's in the way, (laughs) uh, it turns out. So they are using satellites to look at the slopes of the surface of the ocean, derive a gravity field, and then invert to get the bathymetry. A lot of assumptions go into that. Um, But in terms of directly sensing depths uh, from a satellite or an aerial platform, you just can't see through through water. Water is opaque largely to electromagnetic energy. Uh, So radio doesn't penetrate uh, very well. Light doesn't penetrate very well for lasers. Certainly some of these techniques can be applied in in shallow water. And that's that's a big part of solving the mapping problem. Uh, in, in shallow waters, we do use aerial uh, LIDAR, so laser-based ranging measurements. Uh, and there has been a lot of work in using imagery. Uh, if you've looked out the window of an airplane as you're flying in somewhere, you might have noticed that, hey, I can see through the water here, and it sure looks deeper over there or shallower over here. Um, so there's more robust ways of doing that, deriving depths from either satellite imagery or aerial imagery. But for the, for the most part, you just can't see through the ocean. I appreciate you for, for humoring me there with, with that rather clumsy question. But it's an important one, right? Because I think this is an obvious question too. Like, well, We use satellites for all these other mapping operations. Why can't we use it for the ocean floor? Um, because the ocean's in the way. Thank you for clarifying that. So, so what's the answer then? How do, we, how do we make a really detailed map of the, the ocean floor? 
So the, the primary tool of, of mapping the ocean floor and mapping the ocean in general is, is acoustics, uh, using sound. Uh, sound propagates very well through the, uh, through the ocean. Not surprisingly, it's what a lot of the uh, animals in the ocean use for navigation, communication, and living their lives. So yeah, acoustics, um, so sonars is what we use. Can, can you hear these systems when they're working or is it beyond uh, uh, the human capability of, of sensing it? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. So the, the frequencies that we use for ocean mapping systems uh, on the low end, so a low frequency system in the ocean mapping community, uh, at least in the, in the acoustic multi-beam mapping community, would be something like 12 kilohertz, uh, which you can hear. So the upper range of human hearing is somewhere around 20 kilohertz. So yeah, it's a chirpy kind of sound. Uh, I recall I was out doing a mapping cruise on the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Healy, an icebreaker uh, up in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, and I hadn't been on a ship with a 12 kilohertz system before. Uh, and I could hear this thing clicking away. And it sounded like a cricket because uh, it's got a bit of a frequency modulation in the, uh, in the pulse. And I, it was driving me nuts. And I got up, I got up in the uh, middle of the night and actually went down. I said, I'm going to find this cricket and went down a ladder way. <laughs> Uh, so down the stair tower uh, in the ship, down to the bottom of the ship, uh, looking for this damn cricket. I don't know. I must not have been thinking quite right. I mean, here we are in the Arctic Ocean. I'm looking for a cricket. I finally got to the bottom of the ladder well and realized this is the this is the sonar I'm hearing. So, so sure you can hear them uh, if they're if they're within human hearing. Most of the systems we use for anything other than the very deep ocean are are higher than human hearing up at 100 kilohertz, all the way up to 400, 500 kilohertz for some of the very shallow water systems. I used to work for a company and we were involved in building offshore wind farms. And when you're building offshore wind farms, the technology over the years, I'm sure it's changed a little bit now, but back when I was helping this company do it, the idea was you take essentially a big pipe and a massive hammer and just drive the pipe into the ocean floor. This cause some stress for the for the sea life in the area so you had to go in and and scare the sea life away because they couldn't be within a certain distance of when this was happening is there any effect on sea life when you're doing these surveys yeah so that that is that is an area of concern area of a lot of research the and and anthropogenic sound in the ocean is absolutely way way louder than it used to be uh, which is a big concern of itself so it's something we are concerned with Um, it's something that the I think the consensus, and again, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the hearing of marine animals. I believe the consent, the scientific consensus is the high frequency stuff, the stuff over 200 kilohertz, say, the stuff we use in shallow water. There's just nothing that listens up at that frequency. Whereas down in the you know 12 kilohertz, certainly in 30 kilohertz, that is that's that there are animals that communicate at those frequencies. Uh, there's animals that can certainly hear it. Well, a lot of work's been done and is ongoing about looking at the effects of the instruments we use. It's a very direct beam or a very direct targeted piece of sound and looking at animal response. It's obviously very difficult to say categorically, this humpback whale over here is or is not bothered by what I'm doing over here. But yeah, it's a, it's a concern. I can tell you with some of the higher frequency systems we often get, and, and you can even see the say a 100 kilohertz system that we have on our ship, um, sometimes you can see some interference from dolphins operating at sim- similar frequencies. Um, they're echolocating away. They follow the ship around. They, they don't seem bothered. But again, that's just an observational. Uh, it's not, that's not hard science. So yeah, it's a concern. Um, from my perspective, the, the major, so the anthropogenic noise in the ocean is a big concern. Pile driving is incredibly loud uh, and, and broadband. 
because it's so it's an impulsive sound. Other big sources of ocean noise, the biggest one, anthropogenic noise, is just ship traffic, uh, cavitation of propellers. Uh, they make quite a bit of noise. Other types of survey, uh, air guns for seismic surveys or sparkers are quite loud. So yeah, all, all of this is a concern, uh, but getting getting the right science, all sound on the, in the ocean isn't the same, and all anthropogenic sound in the ocean isn't the same. So so getting the science right on that's important. So when I think about an aerial mapping campaign, I think of, I understand that it's really important to precisely position the sensor that's being used. So to understand the, the six degrees of freedom of that sensor, could you perhaps talk to us a little bit about um, the role of positioning sensors in terms of mapping the bathymetry of oceans and perhaps also relate that back to the, the kinds of, of datums that, that are being used. Can I, for example, use the same datums, the same reference systems that I might be used to using during an aerial mapping campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Positioning is, uh, is a big part of the challenge. So maybe it would, it would help if I backed up a little and, and talked about some of the specific technology that we'd use um, what, in terms of sonars. Folks may be familiar with a, a sonar maybe from a, an old World War II movie where there's the ping uh, and then you hear an echo back. Folks may have also used, uh, say, a recreational echo sounder on a, on a small boat that gives you depths. And that's just, we're sending out a pulse of energy through the water and it bounces off something. And we measure the time it takes for it to come back and convert that to a distance if we make some sort of a good guess of what the sound speed in the water is. So modern systems, um, so that technology has been around for about 100 years and more mature, certainly since uh, World War I and World War II, largely spurred on by submarine the threat of submarines. In terms of the sonars we used, for a long time we used single beam sonars, which would just basically look in one direction. So we'd make a, a echo ranging measurement, say straight down beneath the boat. And that's how your commercial uh, off the shelf recreational echo sounder works. Modern systems we've, we've had since the 70s, but really in the past probably 20 years, we've had uh, multi-beam echo sounders. And so rather than just making a direct measurement beneath the boat, they can look simultaneously uh, off to the sides roughly 60 degrees to either side. Uh, so rather than just making one measurement, you're really making a swath of measurements as you as you drive the ship along. So that's probably one of the primary tools we're gonna use to complete this mapping of the ocean. But yeah, absolutely, the positioning is is, is critical to any measurement you make. You need to, you need to reference that back to uh, some other framework. So the, the positioning and six degrees of freedom, we need to know latitude, longitude, height. Uh, we also need to know we need to orient those sensors in, in the other three degrees of freedom there, the roll, the pitch, and the yaw axis. So exactly like positioning a uh, uh, aerial camera system. And, that's, and that, that measurement and the uh, integration of all those sensors is a, is a critical part of, of doing a good job with mapping. Uh, to get to your other point, the datum uh, question is a really important one. I think intuitively you'd think, well, how deep is the ocean? Well, that's just relative to the water surface. Um, so say we measure it's you know, 2,000 meters there. But the water's surface is a dynamic thing. It come, goes up and down with tides. There's annual cycles. The sea levels are generally rising. Um, so even defining the datums that we're going to use, that we're going that zero point, uh, is a big technical challenge all of its own. So yeah, the datums, the datums are a really important piece, and and that's somewhere that, particularly as you get into the shallow parts of uh, of the oceans, that turns into a big part of your error budget when you're making uh, uh, seabed maps. Is that is that datums piece? Uh, traditionally, we'd measure that relative to this to the sea level. Uh, we'd install tide gauges. We'd determine local sea level datums like mean sea level or mean low or low water or in um, other areas, lowest astronomical tide. 
and that's a whole, there's a whole group uh, in, in our organization that works on uh, datums and water level issues. And there's been a tremendous amount of progress made in the past, certainly in the past decade, but really in the past 20 years about getting uh, accurate 3D positioning from GPS. I've noticed you've spoken with some other guests on your show who um, have talked about satellite-based out uh, augmentation services for GPS, uh, real-time kinematic approaches for uh, GPS, uh, post-processing kinematic. Those are all techniques we use to get accurate 3D positioning. Uh, and then uh, we've made a tremendous amount of progress on understanding the datum relationships between, say, the ellipsoid that you might access with GPS and then the datums that we need uh, for our products, such as mean sea level or mean low or low water. Okay, so we're talking about mapping the, the ocean floor. We've established that satellites are not the, the answer for this. If we're going to have a really high-resolution uh, map when, when we're finished, uh, we've talked a little bit about that acoustics are the way forward. We've talked about the problems or the challenges around positioning those sensors and the different uh, datums that we need to work with and perhaps the conversion between two of them. I wonder now if, if, if now's not a really good time to talk about what, what else do we need to know about this sort of column of water that we're shooting acoustic waves through? Is there anything to be um, measured there b before we start or can we just put our sensor in the water, uh, calculate those six degrees of freedom and, and start collecting data? Yeah, so the big one there, uh, because we're just making time measurements and we really want distance, uh, we need a speed. Uh, and we need a speed for two reasons. One, even if you're looking straight down through the water column, uh, you need a speed to right speed time distance to to do that math. The oceans and are largely horizontally stratified. You know they get colder as you get deeper. Generally, um, the salinity varies, uh, and that all impacts the speed of sound. So as we're looking off uh, Nader, off not just looking straight down, but looking off to the side, uh, we have to correct for refraction of that sound in the in the water column, uh, and that's a big deal. So we measure the salinity. Uh, the temperature and measure those both as a function of depth uh, to correct for the both the speed of sound in the water and then also the refraction caused by that changes in speed of sound through the profile. What other things can we see while we're actually doing the survey? You're collecting this time of flight data, you're measuring the distance from the sensor to the seafloor and I, I think a lot of the listeners will understand that you know if you're on a boat you might have a similar sort of sensor and you can use it to see fish. Can we can we see uh, see life through the through the column when, when we're making these these measurements? Uh, can we understand anything about the seabed itself, like the physical makeup of it, when we get the data back? Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's a great question. You cert so you certainly can uh, see both of those things with modern systems, and that's a that's been a major focus of development and a lot of research uh, recently is is what what else can we see with these acoustic systems so I'll start with the seabed by looking at the property of the the, re, the acoustic reflection we get back from the seabed you can infer uh, some properties of the seabed uh, the the goal of just an acoustic inversion just by making acoustic measurements alone uh, and being able to discern what is it on the seabed is that gravel is it sand is if it's sand how coarse is it that's still a bit of an elusive goal but you certainly can partition different areas and say, well, this stuff's different from that stuff. And boy, that stuff sure looks like the stuff that we saw over here and that stuff we took a sample of, and that was a coarse sand. Um, so that's a, we, we call that acoustic backscatter uh, is looking at that intensity and the properties of that, that return from the seabed. And that's a, that's a, along with the bathymetry and along with the structure of the seabed is, is a really helpful signal. If you're, if you're interested in partitioning up the bottom, uh, making say a habitat map or a resource map, uh, delineating areas of, say, sand that you might be interested in for uh, resource extraction. So, yeah, the, that, that acoustic backscatter of the seabed is a, is a really important 
uh, signal. And one we've spent a lot of time trying to understand and collect, uh, acquire that data in a, in a better way. The second part of your question is, is do we see stuff in the water column? Uh, and you sure do. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff in the water column that you, uh, the acoustic signals may bounce off of. Uh, certainly fish, certainly plankton. So the, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. Now, often it's not what you, if you're, in, if you're going out and you're trying to make a map of the seabed, uh, a big cloud of fish is going to ruin your uh, return from the seabed. Other folks may be going out and looking for those fish, but you certainly can see things from the, in the water column. Uh, it's an interesting part of the data. We, we're making a lot of progress as well in, in recording that data uh, and, and analyzing it. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking um, that I, I wonder if they, they end up shadowing what you're actually trying to look at, right? So if you, a whale swims by the sensor just as an example. I mean, that, that would cast a pretty significant shadow on the seafloor. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we do have uh, some imagery of, of whales uh, showing up in the, uh, in the acoustic beam. It's very rare. But yeah, I, I have seen Im- imagery uh, like that. But yeah, schools of fish you see regularly send out a certain amount of energy. Uh, and that's either going to bounce off stuff that you're interested in or get scattered by stuff that you're not. But yeah, it's all part of the, it's all part of the, the oceans. I was thinking too, when you were answering those questions, do you have the opportunity to take samples from the seafloor, like to do a form of ground truthing? We do, and at, at least with the with a classic hydrographic survey, that's a big part of what we do. We go and uh, take grab samples of the seabed uh, traditionally, uh, and then either return that sample or analyze it out in the field. We're moving more towards, in addition to samples where needed, uh, getting imagery of the seabed. Uh, that's been very helpful to help ground truth and constrain what we think might be down there. So that's using drop cameras, been some work with using underwater autonomous vehicles with with cameras. So yeah, absolutely. Sampling the seabed is an important part of understanding what, what it is. When you're doing this kind of work, can you use other models as inputs into the system? Uh, oh, you were talking before about measuring the water column and, and these different um, uh, factors in the water column or parameters, sorry, that are, are going to affect the, the the time of flight of these acoustic waves through the water column. Can I use something similar to a, like a global weather model to uh, look at a water column and say, okay, well, I think the water column is going to look like this, or do we need to take samples of it to, to ground truth it? Yeah, that's a good question, and and that's a that's a active area of research now. We certainly do have global models of the of the parameters that we care about, the salinity, the temperature. Those models have been, interestingly, those models have been fed by many years of people taking these casts or profiles of the water, CTD, conductivity, temperature, depths, CTD casts, um, not only for mapping work, but that's a, that's a fundamental measurement you're going to make if you're going to go out and make oceanograph- go do an oceanographic cruise. Uh, so we've made a bunch of these measurements over the decades. Uh, those have been used to feed uh, development of both global and regional models. Um, and those global and regional models are, are sometimes adequate to, and, and this is a, a pretty exciting field, I think, uh, to then use operationally to say, okay, well, we know enough about this region. We don't need to make, take another profile here. This model is good enough. So it's a bit of a virtuous cycle of making measurements, contributing those measurements back to a, a database, uh, using that to inform models. Uh, but the modeling effort is, is, a, is a big deal. It's a big effort, uh, both globally and, and regionally. So yes, we are. We certainly look at that uh, when we're planning a survey operation. Um, we'll look at expected variability in the water column. Uh, we'll look at how challenging it'll be to act to capture the uh, the correct or a correct or a correct enough 
profile. And some places just are very difficult uh, to survey because of the variability in the sound speed, because the gradients are so steep, because they're so variable. We seem to learn anew that surveying, for example, in the uh, mouth of the Chesapeake Bay in the height of the summer is just very, very difficult because it's so stratified. Uh, It's sort of like looking across a hot tarmac on a very hot, sunny day with just those waves of refraction coming off that surface. So we, we talked right at the start, we, we, we talked about that satellites weren't the right, weren't the right tool for the job. Acoustics are, and I think a lot of us are used to the idea of you know, boats doing this kind of work. What, what about robots? Can, can robots unmanned vehicles? Can they sail around in the ocean and collect this kind of data on a continuous basis? Yeah, they can, but I'll, I'll just go back. So the satellite is an absolutely key part of the ocean mapping effort. I mean, the efforts and the the idea to do a bathymetric inversion from gravity determined by satellite altimetry, you know, first done by, I think, Smith and Sandwell on a global level, is terrific. Uh, so I, I, that that is very useful. It's a great data set, uh, but it's just at a, a fundamentally low resolution. It's at a resolution of 10 kilometers. So if we want to do better than that, we certainly have to put sensors in the water. But then to get to your second point, so yeah, autonomous systems uh, are, are a big part of how we're probably going to get this done. Uh, we can um, and we do have uh, autonomous systems in use now. Uh, it's a very active area of research uh, and development. Uh, probably more mature, surprisingly, is the underwater vehicles. AUVs or autonomous underwater vehicles uh, have been in commercial and academic use for a couple of decades now. Part of that, I think, you know, naively, you think the, de- the underwater environment would be more difficult uh, and it certainly has its challenges. Dealing with pressure is a challenge. Positioning is a real challenge underwater. You know, there's some engineering challenges that come along with that. But the environment, once you get under the uh, under the water, is a lot more benign. Uh, there's you don't have to contend with waves. Uh, you don't have to contend with. Often the currents are a lot less in the deep ocean than they might be in the coastal shallow water areas. So the underwater technology is a little more mature in terms of autonomous systems, but certainly surface. Autonomous systems are both being fielded now, and it's a very active area of research. So yes, that's really interesting that the underwater systems are more mature than than the the surface platforms that are available today. Uh, I w- if you had asked me which one I thought w- would be the most mature, the most reliable, I would have said the surface systems for sure. Just thinking that uh, alone with, with the problem of positioning and navigation under you know, underwater. Yeah, that's true, and the other. Factor, I think it's been relatively accessible to drive boats around on the surface. I mean, it's pretty easy to go buy a boat and train someone to drive a boat. It's not very easy to train someone to drive a boat well. But other option to putting a sensor underwater is building a submarine. And those are very expensive and complicated too. So it's it's a matter of what, what tools are at your disposal uh, that I think has probably driven the advances in the underwater field. But certainly surface vehicles are coming. There's been really a a tremendous diversity of approaches to fielding autonomous systems in the surface. Uh, It's been great to see, Um, whether that's a wave glider, a wave-powered vehicle. um, There's been some great advances in sail, uh, wind-powered vehicles, specifically a company called SailDrone out of Alameda, California, uh, that we've worked uh, closely with on some applications. They've made some really nice uh, advances in a robust operation in thinking about power management in all sorts of fields. So the problems are a lot more complicated than, you know, can a robot drive a boat? I mean, we have autopilots all over the place. So sure, uh, robots can drive boats. Can they drive boats safely? Can they maintain the engines? 
can they, uh, they being the robots, tailor the sensor systems to the environmental conditions? Um, the, so the driving is a piece of it, but the, the whole mapping challenge is, is bigger than just driving a boat around. It's interesting that there's that really strong relationship between the problems that we see with autonomous vehicles on land and the ones that we're going to encounter when we take them out into the ocean. Another really popular platform at the moment when we think about collecting incredible amounts of data quickly is crowdsourced data. Is there any opportunity to crowdsource some of this bathymetry data? I mean, you said it before, there's lots of boats driving around out there. Can we use them as platforms to collect data? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, there's, uh, there's been a lot of work done on, on crowdsourcing bathymetry too. There's some companies, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Olex, which is a, I believe it's Norwegian. I could be wrong, uh, company uh, that's done just that. And I think they've had a lot of success with the commercial fishing fleets that operate in perhaps not very well charted areas and and have a service that they synthesize uh, data that folks collect when they're out on the ocean and then combine that with everybody else uh, and provide that back to their clients. On a governmental effort, we've certainly looked for crowdsourcing uh, applications. Certainly flagging, we've long had a uh, history of looking to our users to flag discrepancies. Familiar with the nautical chart, you might uh, see things like uh, a wreck reported or a shoal position approximate, or somebody's called it in and said, hey, I think I think I hit something here and I think it's about this deep. So that's long been part of our, our mapping strategy, but we, we certainly looked a lot harder uh, at what we can do uh, with crowdsourcing bathymetry. So that that's another active area. Some of the problems are the crowd often, particularly in the deep ocean, goes in the same place. Uh, the shipping lanes bet- between uh, major ports are fairly well established. So the, the crowd travels uh, perhaps narrow paths in some areas. So when I think about mapping efforts on, on other platforms, right, there's, they're always coming out with new technologies. And I'm assuming the same thing is true when we talk about you know, mapping the ocean floor and this, the, the acoustic systems that we're using today. Is there anything on the horizon that you think is really exciting or is going to revolutionize the, the way this is done in terms of mapping technology? The improvements that have been made in the acoustic systems are tremendous. Uh, even over the last decade, uh, the systems are far more reliable. The resolution's way better. The signal-to-noise ratios are way better. The stability of the systems, the ancillary products you can get from them are just massively improved. There's also been tremendous improvements in uh, LIDAR, in aerial LIDAR, and that's made that's made a big dent in the shallow water, which is somewhat paradoxically often the hardest areas to survey are those shallow areas uh, because the, it, the going is so good, so slow with acoustic sensors. So LIDAR um, and then advances in, in imagery-derived bathymetry have also been, been big. In terms of is there something out there that's going to replace uh, large arrays on the bottom of ships as our primary acoustic sensors, or I don't know, I suppose there could be, but perhaps folks listening will, uh, will start working on the problem. It's a big problem. When you're talking about slow going in the shallow waters, is that simply because of the the footprint on on the floor and you have uh, on the seabed floor, and you have to take so many more runs to to cover a, a larger area? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So a, a system that, say, a modern multi beam system that can look a fixed uh, angular distance off to the side, say sixty degrees either way, that's going to map a, a swath of coverage as you drive along around three to four times the water depth. So if you're in a mile of water, that Swath width is three to four miles wide. If you're in uh, 10 meters of water, that's only 30 to 40 meters wide. So it makes a big difference. The depth is the primary driver of survey efficiency. 
I can see a lot of advantages of having a, a really detailed map of, of the ocean floor. We, we talked about that idea of this feedback loop before where models could be used to in, improve the collection of data. And of course, yeah, a really detailed map of the ocean floor will be able to be used in a lot of other different models and a lot of other different scenarios. But uh, I'm wondering... When you think about the scale of the project, the, the scale, it's a really ambitious project. Are you more excited about it or, or daunted or, or perhaps the other way around, more daunted than excited? Uh, well, I think it's a good thing to focus on. Uh, I think it's, uh, I'll be impressed uh, if they get it done by 2030. Uh, but even if you don't get it done, it's not like something that's either, you either have success or you don't have success. Uh, I think even any progress towards the goal is, is valuable. I'd just like to perhaps round off the conversation here. Could you give me a rough estimate of, of what time frame you think it might uh, be achieved in? Well, that's a resource question, really, right? Uh, if you say you really want to go to the moon in 10 years and throw a lot of money behind it, you can do amazing things. Um, so it's, uh, uh, I think there's been good estimates of how much effort, just how many ship miles it's going to take. Um, we've, uh, we've done some work with the, in the U.S. waters, uh, and I think the best estimate from the uh, for the seabed 2030 project i'd have to check those numbers but it's a big number it's something like 150 to 200 ship years of a ship steaming continuously so it's a matter of how many ships can you get out there uh, how many people can you cooperate with how much data sharing can you manage uh, and that's a big part of solving the problem is is cooperation uh, internationally between all sorts of parties sam i really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me i've really enjoyed the conversation it's it's almost difficult for me to get my head around the scale of the project the ambitious nature of it i really really hope it's a success and uh, i wish you all the best with, with your part in it um just before i let you go though can the listeners go somewhere if they want to reach out to you if they want to find out more about your work learn more about mapping the ocean yeah so noah's got quite a bit of uh noah in the office of coast survey have quite a bit of information about uh, mapping the ocean. The Seabed 2030 project has a has a web page. So if you just turn to the Google and Seabed 2030, you'll, you'll get some good information. Thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Thanks, Daniel. Big thank you to my sponsor this week, Pictera. Thank you very much for helping make this podcast episode possible. These guys are doing some really interesting work. At the top of the show, I mentioned a podcast episode I recorded with them uh, late last year, so in 2020, and they had this incredible use case where they, they were using a web map service, a Danish web map service containing aerial imagery, and they were building these object detection algorithms up against this web map service, and, and this blew my mind. I'd always thought of web map services as being a place where we hide data, where we kind of restrict access to it. You know, here's a picture of our data, but you can't actually get to anything that you can do any sort of hard analytics on. And, and this totally turned the tables on that. If you haven't already had time to check out that episode, it's called Machine Learning and Object Detection for the Rest of Us. If you don't have time to listen to the episode, or perhaps you've already heard it before, check out Pictera. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it a little bit easier for you to find them. They're an interesting company doing really, really interesting work. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this podcast episode. I, I really appreciate it. Before I say goodbye, I just want to leave you with a few facts that I've found on Noah's website. And I'll also link to the Seabed 2030 project so you can check it out for yourself. 
But listen to this. The ocean covers approximately 70% of the Earth's surface. It's the largest livable space on our planet. And there's more life there than anywhere else on Earth. So as of last year, less than 20% of the global seafloor had been mapped with modern high-resolution technology. I mean, this is... Maybe this is the last frontier. I really, really, really hope that the Seabird 2030 project is a massive success. I can see some huge benefits from knowing more about this you know, incredibly large space on our planet. And it seems amazing to me that we know more about the surface of the moon in terms of topography and probably more about the surface of Mars than we know about this huge livable space on our own planet. Okay. That's it for me. Thank you again for listening in and for tuning in again this week. It's much appreciated. If you have any questions, comments, want to reach out to me, um, feel free to do so. I'm most active on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can also visit our website, mapscaping.com, and um, you know there'll be email addresses and stuff there if you want to contact me that way. I would really love to hear from you. If you want to do something that would really, really help support the podcast, share it with a friend. That would be greatly appreciated. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.